6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his teaching on the book of 2 Kings, chapters 14 through 16. God just anguished over this this uh, unruly child, as he as way he describes it. And I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger is turned away from him. But see, Israel was unmoved with God's pleas. As the pain of Hosea, as the nation then fails to listen to the, the uh, painful pleas of Hosea, on the one hand, or the angry denunciations of Amos. And the prophets spoke, but Israel would not hear. And one of the things I encourage you to do is take a look at those passages and judge for yourself if there's a parallel with uh, with uh, the Northern Kingdom and America. But uh, let's get on to Second uh, Kings 15. Let's shift again to the Southern Kingdom. Talk about Azariah. The twenty-seventh year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, began Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, to reign. Sixteen years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned two and fifty years in Jerusalem. Wow, started young, but lasted quite a while. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. So he reigned a total of 52 years, and uh, that's the longest reign of any uh, king of, uh, of Judah or Israel to that time. And uh, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, save that the high places were not removed. Here it is again. He, he does really well, except he doesn't go quite far enough. Uh, the high places were not removed. The people sacrificed and burnt incense still on the high places. See, the problem isn't just that they're, they're worshiping God in Jerusalem, but they're also worshiping... See, that's the problem we all have, by the way. This all sounds so remote. It's ancient history, whatever. Let's be careful. Because they're worshiping God on the one hand, but they're worshiping a lot of other things too. And one of the things this should call us to do is to examine our lives carefully. Are we are, are we allowing anything else to... To, to eclipse God in our priorities? Are there other little things we do that are sort of, well, you know, winked at? No, God is very serious. Takes himself very seriously and expects us to take him seriously. Okay, verse 5. And the Lord smote the, and the, Lord smote the king so that he was a leper unto the day of his death and dwelt in a several house, a separate house. And Jotham the king's son was over the house judging the people of the land. So there's an overlap here again. And see, he, uh, uh, what's not recorded here, you have to piece some of this in from Second Chronicles, the parallel passage is about chapter 26. Um, he, uh, he, he's getting very proud and he intrudes on the priest's office. You may recall that God went to great lengths to keep the royal line and the religious line separate. The royal line was the tribe of Judah and the priestly line was from the tribe of Levi. They're supposed to be separate. The Levitical priesthood, the Mosaic priesthood, is separate from the royal line of the Messiah. It gets united in the Messiah. There's only, there's only three places in the scripture 
where we have a king and a priest in the same person. Melchizedek, just a verse or two in Genesis 14, which would go into obscurity if it wasn't for Psalm 110 and some other allusions, and an elaboration in the, in the epistle of Hebrews. The, the priesthood of Melchizedek is different. It's, remember, Melchizedek is one that Abraham gave tithes to. And the writer of Hebrews makes the point that when Abraham's giving tithes to Melchizedek, Levi is still in his loins. In fact, several generations later. Out of, you follow me? So that, the argue, the rabbinical argument is that that makes Melchizedek senior or more higher than the Aaron or the Mosaic uh, thing in general and, and the priesthood specifically. But they're united in the Messiah. So there's three places. We have Melchizedek was a king and a priest. The Messiah was a king and a priest and will be, continue to be. And who else? Got uh, Melchizedek and Messiah. Anyone? Jesus? Yes, of course. I'm assuming the Messiah, Jesus. The believers in Christ. Yeah, the church. The ecclesia. We need to understand the uniqueness of the ecclesia. Not all people saved are in the ecclesia. You need to do your homework. It's very important. But clearly, the kings and priests. Peter uses that expression of us as believers. And the 24 elders in Revelation, the identity of them is very critical in understanding what's going on there. So anyway, uh, the point is, is that Amaziah intrudes upon the priest's office. And for that, God strikes him as a leper. And uh, it must have broken Isaiah's heart when he died because Isaiah was afraid that Azariah's um, successors would lead the nation back into idolatry. And uh, so Azariah became a leper in about 750 B.C. So he shared the throne with his son as co-regent until he died, and his son takes over. So, so Azariah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Jotham the son reigned in his stead. In the 38th year, Azariah the king of Judah did Zechariah the son of Jeroboam reign over Israel. It's in the north now, in Samaria. Uh, and he, he reigned, uh, uh, how long? Six months. Big deal, huh? Before we leave Azariah, I might mention he was probably one of Judah's most uh, effective and influential kings in Judah. He expanded the territories outward to Elath. Uh, he fortified Jerusalem and other parts of Judah. And the combined territories of Azariah in the, in the south and Jeroboam in the north approximated those of David and Solomon, just to give you a perspective. But unfortunately, he became proud and, of course, uh, had this leper thing, and he's then humbled by God. So we have Zechariah, who's going to reign all of six months. That's a rather short interlude. And Zechariah did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. And Shalom, the son of Jabesh, uh, uh, he was, he's, he's going to be assassinated publicly by Shalom. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and smote him before the people and slew him and reigned in his stead. And all the rest of the acts of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of Kings of Israel. So that takes care of that dude, for, for, for at least for, our, for this study. But I get to... Uh, this was the word of the Lord, which he spake unto Jehu, saying, this is a throwback, Thy son shall sit on the throne of Israel unto the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. See, when Zechariah dies, Israel, the northern kingdom's fifth dynasty came to an end. This ends the Jehu dynasty. He had four generations God had committed to him. That's it. So God, that was predicted back there in chapter 10, verse 30, if you want to, you know, track that all down. So Shalom, the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the ninth and thirtieth year of Uzziah, the king of Judah. And he reigned, guess how long? A full month. Oh, this is... See, it's a, it's a, it's a turbulent, bloody, 
um, place of intrigue and assassinations, the northern kingdom. Uh, that go, when you get into idolatry, all the rest of that, all that uh, violence accompanies it. So Manaheim, the son of Gadi, came, went up from Terza and came to Samaria and smote Shalom, the son of Jabesh in Samaria, and slew him and reigned in his stead. Now we know from Josephus, apparently, that Manahim was the commander and chief of Jeroboam II's army. He was stationed in Terza, the former, it was the former capital of Israel, you may recall, back in the first Kings 15 and following. And he probably regarded Shalom as usurper, of course, and he believed that he as a commander of the army should succeed Zechariah. That was his, uh, you know, logical Conclusion. The rest, he reigned for about a month. And the rest of the acts of Shalom and his conspiracy, which he made, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of Israel. And Manham wrote to, uh, to Tifsa and all that were therein and the coast thereof from Terza, because they opened not to him, therefore he smote it and all the women therein that were with child he ripped up. Now, um, the, uh, they didn't acknowledge him as king, so he explained it to, tried to explain it to them a little more clearly. He apparently was intending to intimidate not other Israelite, Israelite towns into supporting him by these rather open atrocities. In the ninth and thirtieth year of Azariah, the king of Judah began Menheim, the son of Gadi, to reign over Israel, and he reigned ten years in Samaria. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, departed not all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. Notice how they always reflect back to the first Jeroboam when they make those remarks, again and again, all through here. And in verse 19, and Paul, as it's labeled here, and Paul, the king of Assyria, came against the land. This is probably Tiglath-Pileser III. And uh, he's the very, he's, we identify him from the Assyrian inscriptions. And, uh, and it helps to unscramble some of the, the uh, chronology. And this is, by the way, the first mention of Assyria in Second Kings. And Paul here, as he's called here in the Bible, is one of Assyria's strongest rulers. And uh, he came against the land. Menham gave Paul a thousand talents of silver, and his hand that his hand might be with him to confirm the kingdom in his hand. So he tries to buy his way into this thing. Uh, about a thousand talents, about thirty-seven tons of silver. He raised from the wealthy men of Israel, and uh, the Assyrian king gave him uh, support. As as he bought some support here, he exacted the money of Israel, uh, even all the mighty men of wealth of each man, fifty shekels of silver to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and stayed not there in the land. The rest of the acts of Menahem are, uh, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And uh, Menahem slept with his fathers in Pekahiah. His son reigned in his stead. In the fiftieth year of Azariah, the king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahim, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned two years. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He parted not from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who made Israel a sin. I, I, I have tried to stand back from trying to worry too much about the chronology. It's a complicated skein, and that's not really the issue. The real issue is to understand the, the spiritual thread here, it's, and they're going from bad to worse as we go forward here. But Pekah, we're going to talk a little bit about this guy Pekah. Pekah, the son of Ramalia, a captain of his, conspired against him and smote him in Samaria in the palace of the king's house where Argob and Arya and with him 50 men of Gileadites, and he killed him and reigned in his room. So um, this is, uh, there he's another assassination. Argob and Arya are probably princes. They were also killed. And this took all took place in what they call the citadel. In the most secure part of the palace uh, in Samaria. And he then assumed the throne. 
He, Pekka has a penchant for scheming, and it's going to give rise to some little digression that I'll come to when we, uh, 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 shortly. All the rest of Pekahiah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. In the two and fiftieth year of Azariah, the king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, began to reign uh, over Israel in Samaria and reigned twenty years. He did that which was evil inside the Lord, departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, made Israel a sin. And so it goes. Um, in the days of Pekah, the king of Israel came Tiglath Pileser, the king of Assyria, and took Ijon and a bunch of other unpronounceable words. I uh, won't wade through all of those. All the land of Naphtali, many of those you recognize, Hazor, Gilead, Galilee, and all the land of Naphtali, and carried them captive to Assyria. This is one of the first deportations. Pekah had taken power in Samaria. He made a treaty with Rezin, the king of Damascus, against Assyria. But this resulted in Tiglath-Pileser uh, leading a campaign and taking over these areas and taking a bunch captive. And this was in about 733 B.C. There'll be a second deportation 11 years later that will finish the northern kingdom. So this is the first of two waves, if you will, that wipe out the, the nation. But we're going to move on here for a moment. And Hosea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Amalia, and smote him and slew him and reigned in his stead in the 20th year of the Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Now, uh, this is a sort of a snapshot forward. You're going to get confused if you don't realize this is sort of an editorial, anticipatory uh, description here. And uh, and by the uh, well, there's some, there's some archaeological uh, inscriptions that help support some of this, but let's just keep moving because we're running out of time. The rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. In the second year, Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, began Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, to reign. Now we're shifting, we're leaving Pekah, and we're going to talk more about him, even though they've talked about his death. We're going to come back to him and some things that are involved here. We're going to shift, the scene shifts now to the southern kingdom, to Judah, and this guy Jotham, who's one of the good guys. In, uh, uh, verse, in verse 33. Five and twenty years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jerusha, the son of Zadok. There's again a co-regency here, because he's going to, con- he's going to continue as co-regent with his son Ahaz, and, until, uh, uh, and, and we're going to get into Ahaz, that's a whole other piece of this. Verse 35, and he, howbeit the high places were not removed, here it is, that, that footnote again, that it doesn't quite cut it, the people sacrificed and burned incense still in all the high places. He built the higher gate, the house of the Lord. Now, all the rest of Jotham, all they did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? See, he was a good king, but again, he didn't remove the high places. And uh, he did a lot of accomplishments. He rebuilt the upper gate, the north gate, and the temple, uh, to, probably to encourage the worship of, the, of, uh, of Yahweh or Jehovah. Um, other building projects, uh, there's a whole list of them uh, from other, other sources. Anyway, in those days, the Lord began to send against Judah Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia. Now, notice what, put yourself in the southern kingdom's point of view. You've got your adversaries, Pekah, the northern kingdom, the son of Ramalia, and you also have just east of them the Syrians, or the Aramaeans. Don't confuse them with the Assyrians. They're going to be the dominant guys later. There's going to be an alliance here that I want to talk about a little bit. And anyway, Jotham slept with his fathers and was buried in the, uh, with his father in the city of David, his father. And Ahaz, his son, reigned in his stead. So we're in the time now of uh, Ahaz, Ahaz in the south, um, Rezin in Syria, and Pekah in uh, the northern kingdom. And that leads us to Second Kings 16. 
Um, okay. Now this pressure, I think, is probably from the Lord to be a test of faith for the Judean, for Ahaz. God's going to be putting some heat on Ahaz. And uh, this is, we're going to now deal with Ahaz's evil reign in Judah. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, that's in the north, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the king of the Judah, began to reign. Twenty years old was Ahaz when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem, did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God, like David his father. So he, he, he goes from bad to worse. It's in Ahaz's day that Isaiah gives us the famous prophecy of the Messiah being born of a virgin, by the way. One of the passages that uh, sort of uh, should be read in parallel here is Isaiah chapter 7. For some reasons that uh, may surprise you, I'll explain in just a minute. Um, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. Bad news. Yea, and made his son to pass through the fire. That's a heinous thing. He... Uh, uh, Sacrificed his son, obviously not Hezekiah, who was a son that would rule later, but as a burnt offering. He offers his son as a burnt offering to an idol. Can you imagine? And this was common practice among the Ammonites and other native pagan Canaanite nations that Joshua had partially at least driven out of the land. And he sacrificed burnt incense to the high places and on the hills and under every green tree, which is an expression like saying everywhere. Then Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Amaya, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war, and they besieged Ahaz but could not overcome him. They're trying to get Ahaz to join them because they're trying to build a confederacy of the north, south, and the Syrians against uh, Assyria. But it's not working. Now, by the way, one of the questions, I'm going to pause here and just insert a little something. One of the controversial questions, are there hidden codes in the Bible? And most people, when you deal with this, talk about the equidistant letter sequence thing that's become very controversial out of books, probably. I'm not going to even talk about that. This is something different. I want to call your attention to Proverbs 25, 2. And it is the glory of God to conceal a thing and the honor or duty, if you will, of kings to search out a matter. In Isaiah chapter 7, there's some comments about this there. It says, It came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up towards Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. That sounds like the verse we just read, isn't it? And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. And his heart was moved in the heart of his people as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Words, this shook him up. This shook. This, then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shirjashab, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool and the highway of the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not. Neither be faint-hearted for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it. Even the son of who? Tibel, or Tibel, Tibel. Now there's an interesting problem here. Who is the son of Tibel? Where you f- go search that if you like. Most people say it's a, it's a epithet of some kind. I'll come back to that. Turns out, if you take that word Tibel, and, uh, you, your sources here are no, is actually the Midrash Rabbah on Numbers, uh, 1821, believe it or not. It turns out there's a form of, there are three different kinds of classic encryptions in the Old Testament, I'm talking about, and I'm not talking about equidistant letter sequences. One is called Albam. If you take the Hebrew alphabet and you um, write it, write it out, and write the second half 
backwards under it, you have a, a, a opportunity to do transpositions. And if you take uh, Isaiah 7, 6, the word tabil in the Hebrew, and you substitute, you find the letter and substitute its matching pair, that's called album. It's named album because of the first four letters of this concept. Aleph, Lamed, Bet, Mem. It's, it, it, album is taking the first four letters of this scheme and pronouncing it. it. And what you do is you take the first letter and uh, substitute the resh for it, and you take the other one. You just follow that. You just follow that pattern all the way through, taking each letter in the Hebrew and transposing it. You end up with Ramallah. So what this encryption reveals, the plan was that if they had succeeded, that the one that would be the guy, the agreed upon boss, was Pekka, the king of Ramalia. The son, excuse me, the son of Ramalia. Not the son of Tabil, son of Ramalia. It's encrypted. Not a big deal, especially since the plot doesn't work anyway. That's not the point. I think it's profoundly significant that there are encryptions in the Old Testament. Now, if you're a student of cryptography in CIA or NSA or someplace, it's well known. These are three famous encryptions in the Bible. There's three, there's three different models. Um, another one happens to be Atbash. It's, that's, that's if you take the second half and reverse it and then do the same game in Jeremiah 25 and 51. The word Shishak turns out to be encryption of Babel. And uh, in Jeremiah 51, uh, the heart of my enemy, it turns out to be the Chaldeans. Not a big deal. And to a student of cryptography, just it's in a historical oddity. But for someone who understands the Bible has a supernatural origin, the presence of encryptions are signposts. It's what the rabbis called a remez or a hint, a hint of something deeper. So I've mentioned that in passing because it comes up in our text historically. I won't belabor it. I just wanted you to at least be aware of it. And, of course, there's references you can get into if you're interested in that. Let's move on. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tigath, police of the king of Syria, saying, I am thy servant and thy son. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. Now, Ahaz does a stupid thing. Isaiah just told him that God's going to protect him, but instead what he does, he, it's a form of unbelief. He goes to Assyria to, make a, to get help. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasure of the king's house and sent it for a present to the king of Assyria. He's trying to get a very powerful partner to keep these other characters at bay. The king of Assyria hearkened unto him, and for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried the people of it captive to Kir and slew Rezin. That takes care of that problem. And the king Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was in, at Damascus. And the king Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it to, according to all the workmanship. So Ahaz went to Damascus. He's so impressed with his altar that he has one made just like it. In, and he, how do you think that went over with God? Pretty upset, of course. Urijah built uh, a priest built an altar according to all that king Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So, Urijah the police made it against the king of Ahaz, uh, uh, came from Damascus. And when the king was come from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached the altar and offered thereon. And he burnt his bird offering and his meat offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings upon the altar. And he brought also the brazen altar, which was before the Lord, and from the forefront of the house and from between the altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the altar. And King Ahaz commanded Urijah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar burn the morning burnt offering and the evening meat offering and king's burnt sacrifice, his meat offering and the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their meat offering and their drink offerings, and sprinkle upon it the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice, and the brazen altar shall be for me to inquire by. 
So this all sounds, you know, you could argue, well, gee, he means it's good intentions. No, he's not following God's directions. And that's important. Thus the Elijah the police did according to all that King Ahaz commanded, and King Ahaz cut off the borders of the bases and removed the laver from off of them, took down the sea, that's this big wash thing, wash basin, off from off the brazen oxen, remember the twelve oxen, we talked about that before, that were under it, and put it upon a pavement of stones. And the covert for the Sabbath that they had, that they had built in the house and the king's entry without, turned he from the house of the Lord for the king of Assyria. So he took these basins from the ten bronze movable standards that was mentioned in First Kings seven. He removed the massive bronze base from under the molten sea that we talked about in First Kings seven, and uh, substituted a stone stand. Then he took down the Sabbath canopy, apparently some kind of covering that was erected in the courtyard to shade the king as they visited the temple, and removed the royal uh, entryway outside the temple. And we don't know what he did with all these. It's not clear what he did with all these things that he took. But anyway, he willingly disobeyed God is the real point behind all of this stuff. And uh, as we go on, you know, we can lose sight of our own selves here. Do we compromise God's instructions in our behavior? Boy, I'm sure we do. Do we compromise instructions for fear of offending the pagan neighbors? That's what he's doing here. He's trying to gain favor with the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. One thing I might mention, that passage in Isaiah 7 that we just touched on to get the encryption thing out, It's a, it, that was up to about verse 4 or 5, 6, 7, whatever. It's verse 14 of chapter 7 where God tells Ahaz, ask me a sign. Well, I won't ask for a sign. He wouldn't do that. And I said, well, God will give you a sign. And that's where you get the prophecy of the virgin birth. And... Uh, and people quibble about the Hebrew of that. It was translated in the Greek by the Hebrew commentators three centuries before Christ was born, and the term in the Greek is very clear. We're talking about a virgin birth. Anyway, Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried in the, with his fathers in the city of David, and Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, Hezekiah is a good guy. And uh, in fact, he's such a good guy, we're going to spend a good portion of the next session on that. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Musler, teaching through the book of 2 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.